This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about Trump's 1968 and ours. August 1968, 50 years ago this week, young anti-war demonstrators fought the police outside the Democratic National Convention in Chicago while the whole world was watching. It was the culmination of an overwhelming year for the anti-war movement, but where was young Donald Trump? We'll speak with Todd Gitlin about it. And we're still thinking about Aretha Franklin, who died last week. We'll have comment from Farrah Griffin of Columbia University. First up, how can the Democrats beat Donald Trump? For that, we turn to Gary Young. Of course, he's a columnist for The Nation, a fellow at The Nation Institute, an editor-at-large for The Guardian. He knows a lot about kids killed by guns. His book, Another Day in the Death of America, a Chronicle of Ten Short Lives, was awarded the J. Anthony Lucas Prize for combining literary excellence and social concern. It's out now in paperback. We reached him today in London. Gary Young, welcome back. Thanks for having me, John. Well, return with us now to March 2016. Ten people are running for the Republican nomination, and Donald Trump is in the lead. The evangelical candidate on the far right is Senator Ted Cruz of Texas. Trump takes an unprecedented step in modern American politics and goes after Cruz's wife with an insulting tweet. Heidi Cruz was and still is a manager at Goldman Sachs. Gary, you wrote recently that this incident has significance for our politics today, more than two years later, but not because of the tweet itself. Well, that's right. Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the head of the Democratic National Committee, sees this horror show unfolding, this kind of, as you say, unprecedented sort of low level of kind of like alley cats attacks. And she says, I want to see Donald Trump speak every day from now until the election. And that chimes with, at the time, Hillary Clinton's uh, version 
taken from the West Wing, let Donald be Donald. That was their, that was their line. Bill Clinton had actually kind of gently suggested a year before that Trump might want to stand for the uh, Republican nomination because he thought he would stir it up. And the logic behind this was the longer this man talks, he's obviously not going to win the nomination. The longer he talks, the more he draws out the base poison of the kind of within the Republican base, the more all of the candidates have to play to that base and the easier it is to beat them then, whoever wins, Rubio or Bush or, or Cruz, who with all this red meat fed to their base, that's what they will have to satisfy. And then Hillary can just, you know, just just whisk off with the prize at the, at the end of the day. Just let the man talk. He is his own worst enemy. And the significance today is that they are still letting him do it. <laughs> that they have, they have no strategy. They have no message. They are thriving on the basis that there is a resistance to Trump. You know, four of the five biggest marches in American history have taken place in the last couple of years. If you look at the kind of mass protests against the um, separations at the border, the Me Too movement, the Democrats hope to be the beneficiaries of all of this anger, and yet they have formulated nothing as a coherent response to the actual politics. So they're in opposition insofar as they say, we don't like that guy, we're against that guy. But in terms of creating a positive vision for what they would do, an alternative, something that people may rally around, nothing. So they're still just letting him talk and letting him condemn himself and thinking that that's enough. Of course, there is a positive alternative. Uh, Today, it's personified by our new hero, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We call her Alex, or AOC. And of course, she's the Democratic Socialist who defeated a leading establishment Democrat for the congressional nomination in the Bronx and Queens. She is going to become the youngest woman in history elected to the House of Representatives. She represents the other kind of politics that's challenging this Democratic oppositionism. Just remind us, how did she get elected? Well, she fought a very kind of robust campaign over a series of very kind of basic easy-to-grasp messages about free higher education, uh, public schools, Medicare for all, and a kind of strong environmentalist message. And she said, look, if we have money for endless wars, if we have money for trillion-dollar tax cuts, then we have money to heal people and to educate people and to kind of um, stop the planetary um, demise. Very clear, very basic, not triangulating, not trying to split the difference, but giving a very clear message of what else is possible, cut through in a way that very few people imagined was even possible. Now, it's the Bronx. I understand that. Not everywhere is going to be like the Bronx in terms of of the appeal of those kind of messages. But first of all, when you look at the appeal of Trump's messages, which are completely incoherent and frankly ludicrous, that quite a few people that I spoke to in Muncie, Indiana, where I spent most of the election in 2016, when I would say to them, 
do you think Trump's going to make America great again? They say, no, I don't think so. They're still going to vote for him. Do you think he's going to bring back these car plants that were here? Is he going to bring them back from Mexico? No, I don't think so. But there was some broad kind of trajectory about what he was offering that they were up for. They needed something to change. And if you contrast that with when I saw Hillary Clinton on the stump in Iowa, and she said, I would rather under-promise and over-deliver. Who votes for that? That's like going into an interview and saying, yeah, I don't know if I can do this job, but you know what? I think if I do it, I'm really going to crush it. I'm really going to crush it. So I'm just going to set your sights real low and then, you know, surprise you after as well. Then, you know, don't be surprised if you don't get a job. Well, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has been campaigning in the primaries. That season is just about over now. The Democrats have pretty much picked their congressional and state candidates who will run in November. Alex and Bernie Sanders campaigned for several people in the Democratic primaries. Two-thirds of their candidates lost. Uh, The party establishment is now saying, we told you so. Even the Democrats don't want that kind of politics. Uh, What do you think? Well, that's crazy. The notion that a group of people calling themselves the Democratic Socialists of America, that phrase which stands somewhere over the last 15 years between an epithet and an eccentricity, (laughs) that they would win a third of the things that they campaign for is actually quite amazing, quite impressive. That what has happened is that this term, socialism, this notion that there might be a different system, a different way of doing things, of organizing things, is returning to, or returning to, is entering mainstream political parlance. So the idea that they lost two-thirds of the seats that they are contesting now shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, I don't think. The fact that they won a third of the seats That should be a surprise to people. And regardless of the fact, the fact that they've lost, of course they're disappointed in the ones that have lost, but the fact that, so I'm I'm not claiming, and therefore it's an electoral victory, but politically what this means is that the Democrats have a significant left caucus within their party. That means anybody who wants to win in the same way that people who want to win in a district where there's large African-Americans, a large amount of African-Americans, there's certain things they have to say. There's certain things they have to do. There's certain ways that they have to behave. Well, now there is a significant, motivated, energized set of voters that cannot be ignored across the country. Far wide, in, in constituencies, far less propitious for that kind of politics, one would imagine, than the Bronx, they are there. And therefore, anybody who wants to be elected, regardless of how kind of uh, right-wing that they want to they be, if they want to be elected, then opportunism itself suggests that they are going to have to, in some way, appeal to this group of people, or at least not lose them. And there's that new Gallup poll out recently that reports The headline was, Democrats today are more positive about socialism than capitalism. 47% of Democrats view capitalism positively. 
down from 56% just two years ago, while 57% of Democrats view socialism positively. That is the first time it has ever had that big a gap and a gap in that direction. Uh, Just in case you're wondering about the Republicans, the Gallup poll found that they were, quote, very positive about capitalism, close quote. Uh, (laughs) What do you make of uh, this striking change that the pollsters have found in democratic views of socialism? One of the things that's interesting about that poll, I think, is it's not so much that socialism is popular as that capitalism has really taken a dive. Yes. And, you know, and that should also not surprise us. We are now 10, 11 years off the economic crash where the poor were made to pay for the mistakes of the rich. Tuition's gone up. Health costs have gone up. Uh, everything's gone up apart from wages. And um, and the fact that, you know, the stock market is doing well is great for people with stock. Yes. But many people don't have stock. Uh, people in America are working longer. Bankruptcies among old people are... Uh, older people are increasing. And so the case for capitalism, that system that was bailed out by the state uh, in 2008, 2010, couldn't be in a less convincing uh, stage. And I think we're in this place, and this is true in Britain too. You know, it, it took quite a long time from the Great Depression to the New Deal in terms of uh, people kind of working through old assumptions. Yeah. And uh, the assumptions that held through the 80s, but particularly 90s with the collapse of the Soviet Union, that there was only one possible system. It was capitalism. It was spread around the world in a neoliberal nature. And that, that there was an inevitability to this, which will benefit us all, has come crashing down around our ears. Uh, there may be people who still believe it, but very few people can actually make a reasonable case for that in this moment. And it takes a while for those old versions of common sense to kind of uh, um, to break down. But that's what I think you're, you're, that's what I think you're seeing. Here. Well, what the Democratic establishment, the Clintonians, reply to this is you have to look where the votes are. And the key swing voters who we could win in November are the suburban white middle-class Republicans who don't like Trump. These are people who vote. These are people who are college-educated, especially the women in this group. They're the ones who we should be recruiting, and they're not going to be recruited by talk about socialism. So all of this kind of Bernie Sanders stuff is going to alienate the key swing voting block that we could win. What's your response to that? Well, first of all, I don't think anybody should be taking lessons from the Clintonians about how to look for votes because that didn't go so well last time. Secondly, I don't think people should go out and campaign for socialism. I think people should go out and campaign for healthcare and um, for education, free education and affordable education and affordable healthcare and wider access and, you know, against sexual harassment and for some uh, level of redistribution and for infrastructure investment and against cops shooting 
people dead in the street for no good reason and for uh, a woman's right to choose what to do with her body. I don't think they should... People's starting point for this stuff shouldn't be vote for socialism. You can't eat socialism. But vote for your future. Vote in your interest. Secondly, if you look at the evidence of the last election, one can argue quite convincingly, and I believe, that the last election was lost by the people who didn't show up. Yeah. And they didn't show up because they were insufficiently inspired. Because Hillary said, I'll underpromise and overdeliver. Because she couldn't make up her mind about NAFTA. Because it wasn't clear whether the billionaire or the Democrat was the one more or less in favor of the banking and finance industry. And so I think that if the Democrats want to win, they have to motivate their base. And it was a depressed and demotivated base that lost last time. Bearing in mind, even that said, they got more votes than Trump, but they didn't get them in the right places. And in the place they didn't get them, it was because people stayed at home. It wasn't because of a massive amount of switching from one side to the other. Last question. We've been talking about how the Democrats are at best divided about what they stand for. What about the Republicans? They don't seem to have that problem. Well, <laughs> the right united insofar as they have the right have given up opposing Trump and decided that they will go along with this thing for as long as it works. But frankly, I think we've reached peak Trump electorally, not politically, but electorally. And I think we're not far off from those cracks, the cracks that you saw. I think we're going to see that turn, likely after the midterms, because it's the Republicans don't have a different viable message to Trump either. That's why he won, because everybody else just sounded like more of the same old and people wanted something uh, more than that. So Republicans don't seem split at the moment because they think that the unity they have is working for them. But that is both time limited and incredibly, incredibly risky. I mean, I was speaking to you in California, John, and we know with uh, Pete Wilson, when he targeted the Latino community, that united a bunch of Republicans around him for then. But that was the end of the Republicans in, in California. Yes. And uh, in terms of where the country's going demographically and where the Trump project is going economically and politically, once the Democrats decide to come out with a message that is pro-middle class, pro-working class, pro-education and health and, and so on, I think that this house of cards will fall pretty rapidly. Gary Young, read him at theguardian.com and thenation.com. Gary, thanks so much for talking with us today. It's been great having you on the show. Thanks for having me, John. Fifty years ago this week, young anti-war activists gathered in Chicago to protest outside the Democratic National Convention. The result was a gigantic battle with the police broadcast on national TV 
and the whole world was watching. It was one of the climactic moments of a year like no other. Donald Trump, however, was not protesting against the war in the streets of Chicago. He had just graduated from business school and joined his father's real estate company in New York City. For the story of Trump's 1968 and ours, we turn to Todd Gitlin. He was a key figure in the New Left, president of Students for a Democratic Society in 1964 and 65, and he helped organize the first national demonstrations against the Vietnam War. He's also a key historian of the era, author of the book The Sixties, Years of Hope, Days of Rage, among many other books, and he's a professor of journalism and sociology at Columbia University. Todd Gitlin, welcome to the program. Nice to be with you, John. Remind us briefly about the events of 1968 before those demonstrations in August. Maybe we should start with, I don't know, the Vietnam War. Well, 1968 felt in some ways like the present in that once, just when you thought you'd heard the most egregious, the most uh, appalling Mm. fact, the most surprising development, something else came on and whacked you on the head all over again. So the war was on. Uh, several thousand, several tens of thousands of Americans had already been killed. The Tet Offensive began the process by which Americans realized that this war was not being won, that the war was going to be, uh, by default, uh, a blow against America's arrogance and the false sense of innocence. And that, let me just say, uh, was at the yeah. end of January and the beginning of February. So yeah. that was the start right. of the year. So in the meantime, you have uh, Eugene McCarthy having declared that he's running for the nomination for president against President Johnson. And he does well against Johnson in the New Hampshire primary, whereupon Bobby Kennedy, after stalling, decides to enter the race. So now we have two anti-war candidates against Johnson. Johnson goes before the the nation at the end of March and declares that he is not going to seek another term. Four days later, Martin Luther King is assassinated, and um, hundreds of American cities are burnt to the ground, or nearly so. Some of them never quite rebuilt. And of course, campus confrontations are in train. Uh, Columbia's uprising uh, April 1968 and uh, police busts and uh, brutality uh, everywhere you can see. So that's the, the setting. It's a, it's a setting that, that lends itself to astonishment, fear, apocalyptic uh, anticipations or fears of worse. Uh, it's uh, it's not a time for uh, unruffled uh, sensibilities. So Johnson's withdrawal from his own re-election campaign was something that had never happened before. And it was clearly a response to the anti-war movement and the anti-war candidacy of these of these two uh, senators. That was a tremendous victory for the anti-war movement in the streets and for the small but dedicated activists in the de- fighting in the Democratic Party to get rid of their own president, that succeeded. But then, of course, Robert Kennedy was assassinated in the on the evening of the California primary in June. That left the opposition within the Democratic Party pretty much without a candidate. And meanwhile, uh, Johnson's 
Vice President Hubert Humphrey from my home state of Minnesota uh, picked up the banner of the Democratic Party establishment. And this brings us to Chicago, August 1968, the Democratic National Convention. What was the plan? Well, the first plan was to try to get to see if you could have a straightforward, sensible, peaceful demonstration. Yes. But the daily administration in Chicago made it evident that they weren't going to permit that. They were going to permit people to sleep in the park. They had imported army and National Guard troops on top of thousands of Chicago police. So they, they were, they were, they were itching for a fight. And some of the organizers of the demonstrations were also, in their own way, itching for a fight in order to demonstrate that the country could not simply be permitted to trundle along uh, in a business-as-usual way as long as this abomination was taking place in Vietnam. So I think it would be sort of somewhat misleading to say there was a plan. What there was was a mood. Yeah. Uh, and the mood, the mood was, let's fight. The fact that the the mayor uh, ordered the Chicago police and the and the National Guard joined in in this huge battle in the streets completely transformed the meaning of the convention and uh, in a lot of ways the anti-war movement too. It left people like you and me. Let's identify ourselves here. A couple of old white men who remember that year very vividly, feeling very despairing, very. Uh, uh, hopeless about how the war would ever end. You are right about that. There was no clear, there was no plausible trajectory toward ending, ending the war at this point. And the, the, uh, the, the killing of Bobby Kennedy sort of put the end to any lingering hope that there might be a, a, a seamless way out or a relatively decent way out. So uh, there was a sense of desperation you know, America was living one one kind of reality. You know, there was an election. There was Nixon. There was Humphrey. There was George Wallace competing for president. And then, you know, the movement was itself on a different plane of apocalyptic expectation without yeah. a plausible direction for a way out. And, and you know, when when you when you've been working against the war for years now, and your numbers are growing. But you are completely unrepresented in the political system, completely unrepresented in the political system. Then you're staring at a wall. You're staring at uh, a, a, an enfeeblement. You're staring at, at hopelessness. And, and that was, I think, very much the mood, although the, the hopelessness was sometimes disguised as its opposite, namely uh, a kind of revolutionary elan, a kind of joyous expectation that the uh, the system was going to break down any any minute, but I, I I would say that was a delusion, and, and what it masked was just the harshest kind of of desperation. Meantime, America's going along. Donald Trump, who you I think rightly want to look at in this context, represents that part of the generation which is actually um, trundling along quite merrily, figuring out how to get away with sort of pretending that life is normal. I mean, Donald Trump represents that segment of the 50s that persists into the 60s. It, it is quite numerous. It doesn't uh, look forward to social transformation. It looks, looks forward to business as usual. 
its hero, as I've written, is 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 uh, is not Martin Luther King. It's not Che Guevara. It's Hugh Hefner. Oh, and, you know, if, as Trump once told um, uh, Howard Stern, you know, his his Vietnam was avoiding sexually transmitted diseases. <laughs> oh, uh, so, and, you know, he was yeah. not alone in that. There, yeah. were, there were a lot of Americans who thought America's doings in the world were not any of their business. Their business was simply to do the American thing, which is to make money. And just to be specific about this, Donald Trump, while people like us were getting ready to go to uh, Chicago to confront the war and the war makers. Donald Trump was graduating from business school, the Wharton School. He uh, had a student deferment. His student deferment turned into a a 1A uh, available for service. He got himself declared 4F, unfit for service because of a medical condition, namely his famous bone spurs. And then he went Went to work for his father and became president of the Trump Management Corporation, in, you know, which had 14,000 apartments in Brooklyn and Queens. And a couple of years later, he and his father were on the front page of the New York Times because they'd been charged by the Department of Justice for refusing to rent to black people. That was Donald Trump's 1960s. Donald Trump uh, probably never spent one millisecond thinking about the war in Vietnam and yeah. Insofar as he was aware that there was uh, an uprising, a tumult, a contestation in America, it was there were some annoying people who were getting in the way of his family business. Well, let's let's talk for a minute about the Democratic Party in 1968. The astounding thing is just three or four years before, when Johnson took office, the Democrats passed two pieces of landmark legislation that still remain high watermarks for us today. The Voting Rights Act, we wish we had it back, and Medicare. Now we want Medicare for all. And just the, from those two things in 65 and 66 to the complete collapse of the party in 68 just shows how how astounding 1968 was and how fast things can turn around in America. Well, this tragedy the tragedy was that Johnson... Um, sacrificed the so-called great society in behalf of this lunatic war. Yeah. Uh, and in the process, he uh, if there was any possibility of a kind of soft landing out of the, um, the turmoil of the Democratic Party into a sort of post-New Deal you know, uh, stability or equilibrium, that that possibility was foregone. The, the, the war destroyed the, the, the great society, it uh, ushered in the reaction, the counter-revolution, if you will, that uh, actually prevailed for most of the period uh, of the last 50 years. Today, the anti-war veterans of 1968 are feeling, you know, embattled and, and anxious and, and, and depressed, and Donald Trump is president. I hate to say it, but are Donald Trump and the people like him the winners of the last 50-year battle? They are the inheritors at the moment, which doesn't mean forever. But they indeed had read the they read the demographics, they read the rage, they read the resentment. They became the party of resentment that could mobilize the white majority into a, rest, a, a restorationist onslaught. Um, I think the, the the immediate outlook is pretty good. But no one should underestimate the the rancor, the the viciousness, 
and the miscalculation that under under undergirds the the Republican reaction. This is the Republican Party that Richard Nixon aimed to, to create, that Ronald Reagan did create, and Donald Trump, for all his bizarre wackiness, is actually you know the the feverish child of that misbegotten counter-revolution. Todd Gitlin. He wrote the book, The 60s, Years of Hope, Days of Rage, and he's featured in the new issue of The Nation magazine commemorating the 50th anniversary of 1968, an interview with Todd Gitlin conducted by Sasha Abramsky. It's great reading. Todd, thanks so much. Great to have you on the show. Always a pleasure, John. We're still thinking about Aretha Franklin. Of course, she died last week. For comment, we turn to Farah Griffin. She's Ransford Professor of English and Comparative Literature and African-American Studies at Columbia University. She's written several books. The most recent is Harlem Nocturne, Women Artists and Progressive Politics in New York During World War II. We reached her today in New York City. Farah Griffin, welcome. Thank you. Well, Aretha Franklin, in many ways, of course, was unique, but she came out of a particular time and place. When she was four years old in 1946, her family moved to Detroit, where her father, the Reverend C.L. Franklin, became pastor at New Bethel Church. What did it mean for her to grow up in that world in the 40s and 50s? Well, Detroit was a um, kind of one of the, what I think of as the great migration meccas, you know, um, where people came from throughout the South um, or from smaller cities um, to a place like Detroit. Some people went to Chicago, others to New York, Philadelphia, um, as part of the Great Migration. And these were places that, you know, had their own difficulties, their own racial difficulties, but also promised a greater degree of mobility and freedom and also quite promised um, possibilities in terms of employment that people wouldn't have had access to. Detroit especially offered that to the migrants, and particularly in a kind of post-war period, it would have been a kind of booming place culturally, politically, economically for black people who came. And yet at the same time, we have to remember that with the wave of race riots in 1943, Detroit had been the site of one of those. So it's a very complex place for um, Aretha and her family to arrive. But um, the church itself would be a place where someone with her gifts and talents could have blossomed. And her world growing up was rich in black music. Absolutely. It's the, the world of the church. Her father is, you know, this very well-known minister who already was a kind of recording success himself, um, having recorded some of his sermons. And she got to know the sort of royalty of black music culture, Dinah Washington, um, Clara Ward, who was her father's partner for a while, Mahalia Jackson. Um, so just in the church world alone, it's like an incredibly vibrant and rich place. But also outside of the church world, Detroit is also this place where the young performers who are her contemporaries, who will make the Motown sound, are coming up and practicing and creating groups. And so there is such a kind of rich, vibrant music culture in Detroit at that time. I think it's unmatched. She released 
the song Respect in April 1967. It was an Otis Redding song, but she changed it. She changed its meaning. Uh, please explain. Otis Redding had recorded that song, and, and I think he learned one of the things that many people would learn with Aretha, that if, if Aretha did a cover, it wouldn't really be a cover. She would make it her own. Yes. Aretha took that song and really made it an anthem. And it was an anthem about a particular kind of woman who had her own resources. She wasn't a woman who was going to, you know, being kept or taken care of. She had her own resources, and she was offering to share them with her lover only if he gave her respect. It's a song that can become an anthem for particular kind of female empowerment, but because of the time in which it's released, it's also an anthem for kind of the um, civil rights movement, the burgeoning black power movement. There's a militancy there. There's a great dignity there. And there is a kind of demand. It's not a request. It's not a request, oh, please respect me, you know, but it's a demand that one of the conditions of having me continue to be involved with you is that you respect me. In 1970, Aretha told Jet Magazine that she wanted to post bail for Angela Davis. Remind us why Angela Davis was in jail in 1970 and what it meant that Aretha wanted to bail her out. Well, Angela had kind of been on the radar. Um, Ronald Reagan, who at the time was governor of California, um, had a real problem with Angela Davis working in the UC system because she was a communist, an avowed communist, and as we know, he was an anti-communist. So there had already been challenges about Angela's place and role in the academy, the public academy there. And then when Jonathan Jackson, you know, went to the Marin County Courthouse demanding that his brother be released, his brother George Jackson be released, used a, uh, uh, some guns to hold the judge in a case there, hostage, the guns were later traced to Angela. So Angela, there was a long period where Angela was underground, and then she was um, caught. She was on the FBI's most wanted list, and she was charged with conspiracy, kidnapping, and murder. Those were federal, I mean, those were um, capital crimes. Um, the, The death penalty is what she was up against. There was a campaign to get her bail. You know, you could not get bail on those charges. It was a capital offense. And so there was a campaign to try and see if she could get bail. And briefly, for a brief moment, when California outlawed the death penalty, then she was eligible for bail. But Aretha, you know, signed on to support her in that campaign and then offered to pay the bail herself. And who was Aretha at this point in in 1970 when she wanted to bail Angela out? So by 1970, Aretha was a major star. She's one of the primary architects of the music we know of as soul. And interestingly enough, she's also appealing to not just black audiences. By 1970, she's got a large white audience, too. In fact, I think Aretha's sound is the sound of the times. It's the voice of the time. She's huge in 1970. And 
Angela, as you say, was a communist. She was probably America's most prominent communist in 1970. The University of California regents had tried to fire her from her first job teaching philosophy at UCLA in the fall of 1969. Now, Aretha was not a communist in 1970. Why did she support America's most prominent communist? Well, I think for Aretha, it wasn't that Angela was a communist. Angela was a black woman, and that's why she supported her. She says in her statement to Jet, I don't even care about the fact that she's a communist. She's a black woman who's devoted her life to black people, and therefore I'm going to support her. She says, I have the money to do so. The bail, I think at that time, was they talked about $250,000. She said, I have the money to do so, and I got this money. I earned this money from black audiences, from black people, and I want to use it to help black people. So it was in spite of her being a communist. She wasn't an, Aretha wasn't like an anti-communist by any means, but that's not why she was supporting Angela. She was supporting Angela because Angela was a black woman committed to black freedom struggle. No. In the piece you wrote for The Nation magazine about uh, Aretha, you interviewed Angela Davis about this mm-hmm. moment. Tell us, tell us what Angela said. Well, Angela said that it really, that Aretha's support really was a turning point in the campaign, and campaign for not only for trying to get her bail or bond, but in the campaign for her freedom. She said that at the time, Aretha was the most prominent figure to support her, other people, who had held back because they were afraid of the communist connection. Like, we aren't that far removed from McCarthyism, right? right? And so people understand what that means. They were afraid. She said that they were then willing to put themselves out, that it really was a major turning point, and that she was always grateful for Aretha's public support. Moving right along, Aretha sang at the inauguration of Barack Obama in January 2009. Remind us about that moment. It was an extraordinary moment. Um, one, it's because of the historical nature of Obama becoming president of the United States. Yes. And Aretha had, you know, she sang for other presidents. She sang at pre-inaugural activities for Carter. She sang for um, Bill Clinton. Clinton. But this was sort of, you know, this is a woman who, who sang to raise money for Jesse Jackson and sang for Martin Luther King and sang at Mahalia Jackson's funeral. For her to actually sing for America's first African-American president was extraordinary. And I always think of her singing in that moment as sort of reminding us of what America's potential was, that this is who we could be as a nation. Look at what we just did. Look at what we can possibly do, what we can become. It it felt like a very aspirational moment. I was there, and I I don't think anyone could have done it in the way that Aretha did. And the song that she sang, that's also notable. Right. She did not sing the national anthem, <laughs> um, she, you know, the Star Spangled Banner. She sang My Country, Tis of Thee, which is a song that claims the nation for the people who are being invoked as community, um, for the people, you know, who she represented in that style that she sang. Claim the country, I think, um, in a way that the, only that song allows her to do for the people who have, you know, maybe been on the underside, maybe the people who have been on the underside of America's history, that this is our nation too. It's not a militaristic song. It's not a bombastic song. It's an inclusive community-creating song. 
So Aretha sang for Obama on the first day of his presidency. She sang for him again at the Kennedy Center in the last year of his presidency. She sang, You Make Me Feel Like a Natural Woman. The TV cameras showed Michelle whispering to him, It's true. At the end, there were tears on his face and lots of others. 18 million people have watched that video clip as of this week. Why do you think that was such an amazing night? There's so many reasons because there's so many narratives that are going on. It's an amazing night because it's the last year of his presidency. It's an amazing night because we know what's coming. (laughs) We know how different the incoming presidency is going to be. And I think it was an especially amazing night, and maybe this is part of the emotion of it, is because of Aretha's own resilience. That here she is at a stage, a later stage in her career. She's a virtuoso musician. She was a prodigy on the piano. And so, first of all, she sits down at the piano, so we know we're getting a rare treat. We're getting to hear her in a way that we don't often hear her. She's accompanying herself on the piano. And then there's that grand diva moment where she stands up and she's so overcome and she's going to give us the best from the very depths of her soul. She's going to give it, um, and she throws off that mink coat <laughs> um, in a, like this incredible moment of drama, you know, almost mm. like an, something that one would have in opera. And her voice is extraordinary. And this is late Aretha. If you think about it, this is going to be one of her last performances. And one doesn't expect someone to be in that voice who's had a career that long, but her voice is extraordinary. And I think that for many people, there's a kind of sadness that we're losing Obama, that the Obama era is over, especially because what is coming. But Aretha always represents, and I think she did that night, the resilience, you know, that we have the power and we have the um, tradition to move through even the most difficult times. I mean, it, it really, I think it's going to go down in history as one of the most important performances of the this period. Aretha represents the resilience. Farrah Griffin, she wrote about Angela Davis and Aretha Franklin for The Nation. You can read that piece at thenation.com. Farrah, thanks so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Start Making Sense, The Nation podcast, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. Katrina Vandenhuvel is editor and publisher of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com and subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and now at Google Play. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.